0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Jeremy England. Dr. England is a theoretical biophysicist who lives in Modi'in, Israel. He was raised Jewish, but did not study Judaism until he had attended graduate school at Oxford University. He now considers himself an Orthodox Jew. He earned a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from Harvard in 2003. After being awarded a Rhodes Scholarship, he studied at St. John's College, Oxford from 2003 until 2005. He had earned his PhD in physics at Stanford in 2009. In 2011, he joined the Massachusetts Institute of Technology physics department as an assistant professor. In 2019, he joined GlaxoSmithKline as a senior director in artificial intelligence and machine learning. He received semicha from Rabbi Chaim Bravander and enjoys studying topics at the intersection of Torah and scientific reasoning. His recent book, titled Every Life is on Fire, is about the burning bush, statistical physics, and the boundary between living and non-living matter. England has developed a hypothesis of the physics of the origins of life, that he calls dissipation-driven adaptation. The hypothesis holds that random groups of molecules can self-organize to more efficiently absorb and dissipate heat from the environment. His hypothesis states that such self-organizing systems are an inherent part of the physical world. Pulitzer Prize-winning science historian Edward J. Larson said that if England can demonstrate his hypothesis to be true, he could be the next Darwin. A fictionalized version of England and his dissipation-driven adaptation theory features in Dan Brown's novel, Origin. Without further ado, Dr. Jeremy England. Thank you, Dr. England for joining us or rabbi doctor, I guess I'm gonna call you. (laughs) Um, So before we get started, I just wanna tell our audience a little bit about you. Um, You can comment on this if you'd like, Um, but I found it very fascinating that not many of my guests have been dubbed potentially the next Darwin, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> it's the first thing that comes up on your wikipedia so
1: and perhaps none of them have accurately been dubbed that, but in any case.
0: yeah so so that that's pretty cool also that um the famous uh um author dan brown he created a fictional version of you in one of his books origin and uh also you appeared on the sean carroll podcast which i thoroughly enjoyed he's actually uh for those who don't know he's a famous uh, theoretical physicist and philosopher who famously was a guest on the Joe Rogan experience. So what, how I discovered the, the doctor, the rabbi, um, is through his numerous videos on, on uh, Machon Shilo, which is an unbelievable um, resource for Torah and science. So I urge all of you to listen to those shiurim as well. Uh, so, anyway, can you briefly tell our listeners uh, your origin story? And because uh, we're just, it's so unique.
1: Uh, sure. Very happy to. And, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, it should be a fun conversation. So, uh, I, I guess I could start in various places. Um, but I guess the, the most important details to start off with are that. I was born in Boston, I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. I grew up um, in a fairly secular home and uh, my sister and I were raised with, on the one hand, a strong sense of Jewish identity uh, that derived from family history. My mother was born in, in Poland right after the end of World War II and her parents had both Uh, been either the sole survivors uh, or one of very few survivors of their immediate families. Uh, And they both uh, escaped the Nazis uh, by fleeing into the Soviet Union during the war and then returned to Poland afterwards and met shortly after that and and married and and my mother was born. So um, obviously when you are born as a Jew into that context, there's a lot of uh, unavoidable identity that you get from that on the one hand, and also there's a lot of baggage as well, where it's not a purely positive feeling that you have about being a Jew. And also it was a a destroyed world, Jewishly speaking, that my mother was born into. Uh, And so there wasn't some kind of intact tradition from her family that that she uh, was carrying with her. Uh, And so, uh, my um, uh, upbringing was one that, on the one sense, no, on the one hand, had a very strong sense of connection to being a Jew and Jewish history, but where there wasn't necessarily a lot of clarity about what that was supposed to mean. You know, what it, what what obligations it produced, um, and it wasn't. It, we didn't have a home that was uh, focused on the Torah and what was in it or on observance, um, but more like there was a connection to a community. But again, I, I mentioned, I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. There aren't a lot of Jews in New Hampshire. So that was another uh, reason that I think I didn't have a, a high exposure to Jewishness growing up. So that, that was all kind of like a, a a preamble for then, you know, my education. Um, let's see, I'll backtrack too. So, so all of that was a, a A preamble for saying uh, that over the course of my education, it mostly didn't consist uh, in the early years of my life of lots of Judaic content. There was some, um, but not enough for me to know how much it meant to me or for me to understand much of it or derive a lot of meaning from it. Um, And then you know, I went to study in college and grad school and things, and I was getting pretty heavily trained up as a scientist because I was really interested in that, and I I liked doing it, and I was I was very attracted to the power of theoretical physics to understand the world with simple principles and ways that were very general and could apply to all sorts of different scenarios. And I was also really fascinated by biology because living things have this architectural complexity to them that is really wondrous to understand when you get into it, especially at the molecular level. And so all of that was true about me once, you know, as I was getting into my twenties and before I really took a a significant interest in um, what Jewish identity or Judaism meant to me. But then I was studying uh, in the UK after I, I finished Uh, my undergraduate degree, and I had a a chance to visit Israel for the first time, and it was also a time uh, in my life when I was much more exposed than I had been previously to politics connected with Israel, Uh, and it was kind of a cold shower for me because I think going to a European university campus in 2003 on the heels of the second Antifada and the US invasion of Iraq, I just wasn't prepared for the level of anti-Israel and anti-American animosity that I would encounter. I had been kind of sheltered from that before that point. And it just really shocked me into a state of really needing to ask how much this mattered to me because it suddenly felt like the stakes were very high. Um, so I visited Israel, you know, I started learning Hebrew, I, I felt more at home here in Israel than I, I ever did anywhere else in my life, uh, in a way that really profoundly affected me. Um, and then that was sort of the primary rocket. And then the secondary one was uh, encountering Talmud Torah, like be, be beginning to start, start to study the Torah, which I think um, I was fortunate enough to start figuring out how to do because I had good friends who connected me to some of the right sources to kick things off. I started reading uh, Rav Jonathan Sachs while I was in the UK uh, uh, of blessed memory and um, also Rav Soloveitchik of blessed memory. And, and uh, the those were some of the beginning points but really getting into the sources, getting into you know reading Chazal and, and Tanakh and, and doing it in a way that really presumed it had an infinite amount to teach me and, and learning how to approach it with humility and learning how to approach it with the presumption that it knew more than me and I wasn't holding it to my standard. I think once that began, it just became so clear to me that this was not only the most intellectually deep pursuit that I had ever had the chance to participate in, which was obviously very alluring and, and drew me in, but also that it it uh, very clearly and compellingly was how I wanted to understand uh, the way I made decisions about how to act in my life Um, and so that was I don't know 16 years ago or or something like that the beginning of that process and it's still ongoing and Bo Hashem there's been a lot um, that I've I've gotten to do with that strange combination uh, of experiences since then uh, because I think that having gotten to grow up into young adulthood as a scientist, like someone with this very deep conviction about, I'm a scientist and I really am, I believe in the power of science to help us understand things about the world, but then also at the same time to encounter Torah with the desire to understand how to square it with what else I uh, had, had learned about the world, that, that, that combination I think sent me in what turned out to be an interesting direction.
0: And do you feel like because you had the background in science before getting into Torah, did it shape kind of how you approached it?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, I mean in in one sense, I think it was uh, there's a general sense in which if you get good training as a scientist, you are trained to have a nose for intellectual sloppiness and, and to not accept it. Meaning that uh, when you're trying to come up with explanations for things, there always is an opportunity when you're trying to explain something that's sort of puzzling or discomforting to come up with something that is not really a good explanation, but is sort of a, a patch or you know it sweeps something under the rug. It, it, It purports to uh, resolve an argument. um, And that doesn't get you very far because if you resolve contradictions with mediocre solutions, then you kind of, you don't, you're not propelled to think deeply and try to understand things better. Um, And and then you sort of quickly arrive at perhaps a, a story you're telling yourself about how things fit together that is supposed to be um, comprehensive, but it's actually not very coherent. It actually actually doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Uh, it, it It's vulnerable to all these sort of counter arguments or questions. And so I think just that general training is something you can get outside of the domain of the but it obviously is a very uh, broadly applicable uh, methodology for intellectual pursuit. And so I think that I, I came into uh, studying Torah with that set of skills, more generally, but then I also I, I think that for me what was important was this wasn't a moment. So on the one hand, I had this very powerful motivation to take Torah seriously because I think because of what I described, I was coming from this very sentimentally motivated place. Like I had this big powder keg of Shoah family history baggage that had been sort of ignited by. Um, experiences that I had and I had felt this very powerful desire to close ranks with my people and and show a lot of loyalty and interest in our tradition and so I wasn't going to consider the possibility that our tradition was wrong and at the same time um, I didn't do that in a way where it was sort of let me take out my brain and replace it with another one like I didn't I didn't think that that meant that what I should do is let go of what I had already learned about the world uh, that was useful and effective in it and 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 uh, start from scratch. It was more like anything any progress that I made in my understanding of Torah. it had to be uh, done in such a way that it preserved the intellectual integrity of of what else I, I thought already could be understood. And I don't mean that means, science was the higher standard on the contrary I think from a very early point it was important me to say well the thing the way this actually makes sense to say that Torah is the foundation but then you have to figure out a way of making what is effective and and make sense about science fit within that framework and there are a lot of things that at first seem like they don't fit very well but the point is you don't just sort of say okay so I have to pick one you hold on to both of them in tension for a very long time, and you think about it a lot, and you keep working on that question. And if you do that for long enough, then under very high tension, you can actually start to resolve in very interesting ways, and I think in productive ones, um, a, a sort of bridge between them that works and makes sense, and and doesn't require intellectual compromises on either side, and and more crucially, doesn't require you to have. To gods or to to uh, hold Torah to the yardstick of some other ideology.
0: So I imagine that it's you must have had a lot of pushback or ridicule, let's say, from because it's not common that you know an Orthodox rabbi is also uh, kind of a prominent uh, scientist. So in that world, I feel like it's maybe now it's it's changing, but but like maybe as you were. Rising up through the ranks, so to speak, you you encountered some uh, you know some pushback.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would break that into different stages. Like, I think um, if you if you talk in terms of the completion of my studies and the, the beginning of my career, like as a lecturer or a postdoc or whatever, at that point, this was a personal choice I was making about how to live my life. And, you know, you know we're talking about um, a, a, a setting in you know, the context I was in, let's, let's say at various universities that I was at in the US where there's a lot of professionalism in how people approach things that are just sort of diversity and choices that people make about how they live their lives. And so I never felt like Um, I was being personally attacked for being uh, religious. uh, But I, I think, or at least what I would say is that if anyone ever said things that seemed sort of insulting, it was in like an offhand way that was not intentional. I don't think it felt to me like it might have felt to be very openly Jewish decades earlier um in institutions that maybe had more sort of uh open cultural anti-semitism in an earlier era i always felt very welcomed and encouraged in that sense it's just like oh that's interesting um there were sort of things to do with campus politics having to do with israel where obviously you always can meet people who are breathing fire about israel um and that was the case in grad school when i was at stanford and um going forward uh but Uh, So I don't think that I encountered direct hostility from the personal choice of being a a more observant Jew. Uh, But once I was a professor, like I I joined the physics faculty at MIT in 2011 and going forward from there. And I think as my research um, got more attention, and I felt more pressure, I mean, Probably, my research got a kind of attention that pulled the discussion into the realm of religion because some people, you know, I was were doing research on things connected with the origins of life. Um, and there were people who, like in the public domain, especially on the internet, where specious claims about <laughs> the connection to Charles Darwin and whatever else get made by um, the Sort of maelstrom of, of rumor that is the internet um the, the the upshot of that partly was that there were some people who wanted to say oh this scientist has just the existence of god because you know now he's said this about the origins of life or whatever and and once that was happening i felt like it was important for me not to just sort of step quietly and 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 try not to attract attention in terms of what I actually thought about some of these questions. And so I started deliberately being um, more pugnaciously open about where I saw the boundaries of you know where where the science ended and where it started being kind of an ideological discussion or a philosophical one. And I would sometimes make comments like that in the context of uh, scientific meetings or whatever because Uh, Not to say that I I started trying to teach Torah in a seminar that I gave about physics, but more like um, there are things about the kind of physics I was doing where you're translating between languages, talking about the world in terms of biology or in terms of physics, uh, where I I felt I'd actually learned philosophically uh, how to do that in part by grappling with with, with uh, the book of Genesis uh, because the question of how you relate to a world um, that can be described in different terms, I had, you know, years earlier concluded to myself that part of, you know, when, when the Torah says the, the way that speech perceives light, that part of the point of that is you know, that the light by which you see the world comes from the way you talk about it. And and when you see in that same passage how there is Yabashah, like a dry expanse, and it is created as Aretz, by being named Aretz, Hashem gives it a name, he names it land, Um, or or there's a Rekiah, like a a firmament, a stretched out thing, like in the um, basic semantic uh, breakdown of of the word Rekiah. Um, and it's named Shemaim, and that makes it Shemaim, that uh, the naming of things is an important part of their briya, of their creation uh, in in the beginning of of Assef and Brishid. And so um, that taught to me in a way that I think ultimately made me better at at doing some of the science I was doing, uh, that, that taught to me that part of how the world is created really is how we choose to talk about it and that doesn't mean all ways of talking about it are equally valid um, but it does mean that you can take the same thing and you have to be aware which language you're speaking when you're talking about it because you might be able to characterize it in two different ways and then you have to recognize your role as the translator between those languages if you want to deal in both of them and that actually I think helped me refine my thinking about the question of what it means to ask where life came from as a physicist, because physics is not biology and it's not actually speaking the same language. So I tried to make that point and I would sometimes make reference to Seyfried Mukeshit while doing that um, in some talks that I gave. And I'm sure by that point, I was kind of ruffling feathers with some scientific colleagues and people were saying like, why Why is he bothering to mention that? Um, uh, Because that I think does cross a red line where a lot of scientists actually feel in their own motivations an almost religious aversion to uh, any mention of biblical religion as though it has intellectual contributions to make to our understanding of of what we're talking about Um, and, and once I was doing that I think not directly to my face but I think indirectly from what I heard there was a bit more kind of Um, of an immune reaction against me (laughs) so so yeah it it kind of broke into different aspects
0: well i think also like rabbi Sachs and uh he he put it nicely when he was talking to uh richard dawkins he was mentioning how like judaism or religion is trying to answer the why and you're trying to answer the how science isn't really trying to answer why per se it's just you know it's it's in a way the torah is all-encompassing in terms of you know the, the wisdom that you can take from it—it's philosophy, it's it's law, it's poetry, it's science, it's everything. So um, there's there's a lot of I guess most of the pushback against you know the the Torah approach uh, to science is that you know they don't really see the connection. And I think what you're doing is is really remarkable because you're you're showing that no, there's absolutely a connection and here's why, X, Y, Z. So I think what you're doing is amazing and uh, it's an amazing story.
1: I, I appreciate that. I, I think you make the right point, but I would in response have to comment that I think that this distinction between the why and the how, um, it, it, it's obvious why people try to make that division. And, and there's a, there's good reason that it works to a certain degree, because it is true that um, science in principle is trying to be just descriptive and make claims about how things work and and, and not make attributions of ultimate purpose to them. And it is also true that there's a, a richer discussion about ultimate purpose and meaning that you find outside of science or, you know, in the domain of Torah, however, I do think it's important also to um, point at the limitations of, of that dichotomy because I think it's both the case actually that a lot of scientists and how they teach science and how they try to understand what it is and what they're doing, that it's not really just that they say they're not interested in, that, in the why. It's that they think they've proven there is no why. They, they think that actually the correct position Uh, is that because of what science has revealed to us, we see that all attributions of why uh, are false and misguided, because when you look at things through the correct and comprehensive lens of science, that aspect of discussion is missing and therefore it doesn't exist. And I've often compared this to taking a black and white photograph of a rainbow and then claiming that color doesn't exist. Uh, I, I think it has to do with wow. the methodology of science that it sort of assumes at the outset. It doesn't prove there's no why. It assumes at the outset that this subject cannot be spoken of um, in its methodology, terminology, like its, its whole um, intellectual approach. And, and then scientists who are not actually great, philosophers of science, even if they're good scientists, typically um, get confused about this and 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 start kind of talking down to others about how obvious it is. That this is all absent, and this, you especially see this in kind of popular scientific devolutions of this, where I don't know uh, people who aren't even necessarily scientists, um, uh, like Yuval Harari or whatever, will opine about the like. Ultimate pointlessness of existence. After talking up um, a, a view of the world that focuses on it as, like, you know, we're all just a quintessence of dust or whatever. You know, the the the, the materialist view of, of what um, life and and, and uh, the universe are that obviously doesn't identify any purpose. But I, I and the other thing on the flip side, though, is I would say that there also is something too simple about that the characterization coming from the other side, meaning that saying that um, uh, Torah is, is about the why, but it's not about the how. That's a little bit unfair because it is a narrative, right? And it does have, as you read it, a sense of a chronology. Like it's a very confusing one and it's one that's very problematic or that causes you to ask many questions and that it's difficult to resolve. Um, uh, but it isn't uh, a didactic essay about why that avoids making any kind of claims like that. And that's why people come up with this sort of default idea that biblical religion is unre- has, an, has an unresolvable conflict with science because it does purport to tell a narrative sequence of events that's different than what scientists say. And and then you end up with what seems to these contradictions. And so I think that the the way that I have tried to uh, pivot out of that difficulty a bit is by saying that we should not pretend that there is a way of fully separating the question of why and how in both directions, meaning that there are different hows, there are different descriptions of how things happened that you can give. And they have different ideological uh, sort of slants to them. Um, And that doesn't mean that all accounts are equally good and that we can't argue for, for, for some being better than others, but it does mean that we may need more than one in order to cover what's true. Um, And it may be also that um, in order to articulate an understanding of why you need to deal in the business of of giving a characterization of how that allows you to illustrate the why. So I, I think the Torah talks about a sequence of events at the beginning of everything because it, it needs to adopt that position in order to teach us the truth that it's coming to teach us. Um, and I, I'll just say his last point, that this was also kind of a trigger, you mentioned this thing with, with Dan Brown before. So, you know, he wrote me into a book of his without asking me um, and then told me a month before uh, it was coming out that he had done so. And in the book, my character, who's a scientist who studies um, the origins of life, makes some kind of explicit statement that, um, although being like a religious person or whatever, that he's just interested in describing how things are, but not, um, you know, uh, but, but that, that, I, 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 that this character leaves the rest of philosophers. Uh, and I'm very much not that way. I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm a scientist who is foolish enough to think that science just describes the one way things are um, and uh, that I, I leave discussions of what one should do or, or, or whatever else or what the purpose of it all is um, to other people. I'm interested in what one should do. I'm interested in the purpose. I'm interested in that discussion. And I also think that people, whether they be someone like Ruff Sachs um, or someone uh, like a scientist who's making this case, people who uh, arrogate to the scientists, the role of, in a totalizing way that cannot be disagreed with, uh, giving the only accurate or or useful full characterization of what is, they are mistaken.
0: Very interesting. So thank you and actually you kind of touched on um, a little bit on what the, the next question is going to be dealing with, but do most scientists understand what science is? And what does this have to do with the perceived conflict between biblical religion and science?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that we, we, we touched on some of that um, already. Uh, in, 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 well, so I'll start again. I think that when you are taught to do science well, there's a lot that you can be taught that's about making you good at playing the game according to certain rules, but not understanding the prior position outside of science that would be one where you could talk about how those rules are being chosen. So you go and, and I mean, first it's it's even more serious than that because there's so much knowledge science has generated now that you could spend all your time just learning about things that scientists have discovered and that they generally agree upon now um, and you can be very knowledgeable and very skilled in certain ways but it, it's like you you're in this walled garden um, where you can be very effective but you don't have like the bird's eye view of it so you can learn about protons and electrons and neutrons and you can learn about DNA etc 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 and there's all these different things that you can develop a deeper understanding of theoretically, you, know, you can do experiments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can be taught even methodology of science where it's like, okay, you, know, you want to be able to generate experimental results that are reproducible where you can share your methods with someone and tell them to them. And then they can do the same set of observations um, and they can, they'll, they'll, they'll get the same results um, and et cetera. It's like all the, the uh, intellectual components of that and being taught the scientific method. Um, I think that a majority even of very good scientists don't in practice have to think very much about whether there are things about the world that are true that are not just difficult to access with the scientific method but might by definition be inaccessible to the scientific method right like and, and you can actually it's not very hard to think of fairly trivial examples of this like Science strains towards the ideal of objectivity. It's about things that you and I both have access to, um, so we can measure things out in the world, like the temperature outside, and we can look at the same thermometer or two thermometers made according to the same methods, and we can agree that the, the numbers that they're showing, you know, agree within certain bounds or whatever, and then we can base our discussion, the social process of science, because really you can't do science by yourself. You, we can base that on on those things that we share. And speaking in Wittgensteinian terms, it's, it's a language game that has you know certain conventions, right? Um, if I talk about my subjective experience, there are things that I experience that no one else has access to, and it might be the case that you could observe things about me or measure things about me that. Correspond in general to my reporting that I'm having certain subjects as uh, subject experiences. So you can scientifically study the external and objectifiable things about me that seem to happen when I say that I'm feeling pain or when I, you know, see the color red or whatever. But that is not the same thing as studying my subjective experience. And it, and it never will be. By definition, it can't be. You cannot do science on subjective experience because science. Defines itself as straining towards that which can be made objective, um, and and so what does that mean? Does that mean that my subjective experience is not part of anything that's true about the world? Like, period. We're just done. We we, we discard it. It's an illusion. It's not as simple as that, right? Like, it's it's a, it's legitimate to, to pose the question whether subject, subjective experiences are part of what can be true about the world without there being scientizably true. Um, and so I think already we're talking about like 5% of scientists who bother to ever think about that. Even ones who are very good at their job, they might be brilliant theoretical physicists. They might be, you know, Nobel prize winning biologists or whatever, where they, they learn the rules of a game within certain boundaries. They've played it very well. They know how to do that. They know how to discover a new protein and figure out what it does. They know how to, propose a new mathematical term in the standard model that will you know, tell you about the physics of some particle that interacts with the Higgs boson or whatever, but they just have never lifted their eyes to that kind of question about what science is doing because they're not encouraged to mostly when they're taught how to be scientists. Um, and I think that observation about scientists culturally is huge part of the explanation for how scientists can be so smart and so good at what they're doing and yet also be mostly as a group very closed-minded and and very childish in their understanding of what for example Torah might have to teach about the world Um, and I don't mean like oh if they just like sit down and think a little bit more about it they realize that Torah is the only answer and it's obvious or, or something like that. It's a long discussion. Um, but I, I think that their there acculturation in a, a view of the ability of science to reveal things that are true about the world uh, as, as like the sole method for doing that, that isn't necessary for doing science well. In fact, it, it can sometimes prevent you from doing science well, um, but it is a, a common cultural trope. Like they're taught to relate to what they're doing so they're walking around turning over rocks and discovering different things that are true about the world that were always true, um, but which um, just needed to be found out. Whereas in fact, they are much more so engaging in a social process where they talk to each other about what seems to be objectively predictable about the world and trying to make up together stories about how to codify uh, that predictability uh, in ways to see new implications of it. Uh, and that latter characterization, I think, is the, the way of understanding what science is that fits into a broader worldview that's founded on Torah. And I think it actually is a, even if we weren't talking about Torah, I think many philosophers or scientists would admit that's a more accurate characterization of what science is. But most scientists don't bother to think about that. And they're even actively educated by the scientists who teach them about science um, to take a less coherent and more arrogant view of what it is that they're doing.
0: Thank you. And uh, should we be trying to figure out if the Torah agrees with or knows about the discoveries of modern cosmology or paleontology?
1: So I think that that question relates to the last one. And I, th- I think it's it's a good question. Um, uh, opportunity to start by asking a sort of sub question, which is What does the Torah think science is? Or maybe I already maybe tried to, to point at that a bit obliquely just now, but more explicitly, where does the Torah talk about science? Or can you argue that it's talking about that? And we don't have to cover like everywhere what I would argue that it is. Like, I think, for example, in the, the narrative in, in Sefer Bereshi that's about Tzaddik, you can there's a whole discourse about scientific reasoning and what be, can be discovered about the world with it. But I think you can argue there from the text, but we don't have to dive into that right now. But just basically looking at Bereshi, like what I was saying before, that this idea that naming and creation are inseparable, that you choose, you develop a vocabulary for the world. This is again, like a Wittgenstein was a very Jewish philosopher, even though I think his parents were, Converted Jews, or, or something like that. You, so he maybe wasn't technically um, fully a Jew, but he is a very Jewish set of attitudes in his philosophy, which frustrated a lot of other philosophers. Um, uh, and he has this, this quotation like, "Die Grenzen meine Sprache bedeuten die Grenzen meiner Welt, or something like that. I may have screwed up the grammar there, but that, that the, the borders of my language um, are the borders of my world. Like he, Totally separately from talking about Torah, um, was pointing out that your choice and how you talk about things sort of redefines the, the boundaries and and the sort of the slices that you're making, taking out of the fabric of reality and saying this is one thing and this is another thing. This is where the table stops and the rest of the world begins. Um, and and so your your vocabulary and terminology are essential in that. I think that's actually a central point in the beginning of of Masoretic and, and Sefer Septuagint the beginning of the work of creation in the book of Genesis that um, uh, you have the verb likro to, to name things you have the verb livro to create things uh, and and they're they're not separable they're entwined in such a way that are intertwined in such a way that part of the creating of something is to give it a name and what that's pointing out to us uh, is that we have different ways we can characterize the world that best capture different aspects of the truth about them. And that doesn't mean that all, all languages are equally good. Um, But it does mean that we play the role of of the translator. And, And the reason I think that's important for these questions about the past, like when you now say, okay, what about the Big Bang or dinosaurs or whatever, how are we supposed to understand this, talking about the Torah, is I think that if you go to the beginning of uh, of Sefer didn't have that understanding of what scientists are doing, meaning that DNA is not a thing or electrons are not a thing that had this freestanding, completed existence that was independent of the development of a language um, for characterizing them. I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk in magical terms and saying somehow that like the power of words has like the you know that magically conjures the completion of a thing into reality. Um, and 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 trying to to speak that way. That I think sounds variably either a bit Christian or a bit Kabbalistic. And I think there's a lot of commonality in how Christianity and Kabbalah talk about um words and their power that probably stem both from Gnosticism in some way, um, but that's like a whole other topic. Well, I don't um,
0: want to get into that, but maybe on another show, but that's, yeah. a, that's a great topic, right up my alley.
1: Um, so, but but in any case, I'm not talking about sort of like the magical power of words. Um, uh, what I mean is that uh, the meaning of the verbs in the Torah that are being used, what it means, what, is, what does it mean to create That creation involves speech about the created thing and naming of it, the development of vocabulary of a theory of it. Um, that's the meaning of the verb. And so if, if you haven't done that, you might have a dry expanse, but you don't have uh, the fully created aheds, so to speak. And I think that um, the, the natural sciences are about the development of ways of talking about the world. Uh, and they're not fully determined before people engage in the social process of convincing each other what is an effective way of talking about the world. Um, so to the degree that that's the case, uh, when we're when we're talking about how the, how the Torah understands what something like science is doing, now you can go back in and say, all right, so scientists who like to say, oh, well, the Bible is nonsense because it doesn't talk about the Big Bang or what have you, um, one kind of answer there is, why would you assume that that is how the Torah wants to characterize the world? Like, what is the purpose of the Torah? And I'm not the only one who's made some version of this point. The Torah is a, uh, a guide to the Oved Hashem. It, is the, it, is, it seeks to be enabling of someone who wants to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for that person to know HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to understand what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from him, um, and to know better how to uh, align action and speech uh, with the desires of the creator of the world. It might be the case that uh, part of doing that would, you know, it would help here and there to know what DNA is or to know what electrons are, depending on what you're trying to do in your elaborate uh, effort of avodat Hashem, serving Hashem. But are those really the first things you need to know? Like, is that the, the starting vocabulary with which to relate to the world? Let's talk about, you know, quark gluon plasma or something. No, the starting vocabulary for relating to the world is light and dark and land and sea and men and women and fish and birds. And, you know, these, these are the fundamental things that, you know, these are the ways that the borders of the world that you set down to begin uh, on your mission. And yes, maybe as you get very specialized and you want to cure some disease or you want to build some technology that will maybe be useful in the course of of serving a Shim, you also want to invent the vocabulary of electrons or what have you. But did did we need to start there? No. And in fact, it would be misleading and um, uh, distracting to start there. So the Torah doesn't start with that way of characterizing the world. It, It characterizes it differently. Um, because it's it's focused unswervingly on, on helping you to know Hashem and and to learn better to do what he asks of you. So now, now that we've said that, this question about paleontology or or cosmology or whatever, a first answer to that simply is it should not be presumed that this is a way that the Torah is interested in talking about the world, and that doesn't mean. So to speak, that Akedas Baruch who doesn't know about these things, and and would have put them in the book had he only known. Um, that's sort of speaking in a in a, a cartoonish joke of a way, but it's kind of in a sense the way that many scientists who deride biblical religion um, are uh, inclined to talk about this. But that that's not um, uh, that's not the way I think to put it. The way to put it is that uh, you you need a reason to talk about the world a certain way uh, that serves the ends of Torah in order for the Torah to take up the subject. And it it might not have had that reason. However, the other thing I'll say uh, is that it might indeed find reasons in places that we don't necessarily expect it. Um, But when it does, it's not going to do that just to sort of prove that it's smart. I don't think that the the Torah ever just winks at you and says, well, on the surface, this seems to be a document that is written, you know, in a certain genre and with a certain way of talking about the world. But secretly, this is written by the creator of the world. And so I have to prove that to you. And in order to to prove that to you, I will hide uh, information about what I know about DNA here. And if I hide information about what I know about um dinosaurs there but there's no point to any of it other than just to convince you i don't think the torah is trying to convince us that it's true it's 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 a breed it's a covenant it says if you make yourself a party to this agreement then here's you know the other side of that promise so you have to buy in and then okay, those who also has promises that he makes uh so it's not saying first figure out if this is true or not by testing it with science. And then if you can you know, make that work, then uh, if it meets the standard of science uh, or meets the standard of whatever other God you have, um, then it's good. Uh, that's not how it submits itself. But what it does do, I think sometimes, is it takes things that may be there for us to grapple with and realizes that there are sub- t- subtextual points um, that are really significant in Avodat Hashem that need to be taken up. So for example, like whatever you make about, whatever you make of paleontology, there are rocks in the ground that are shaped like the bones of giant reptiles, right? Like it's very hard to dispute that. So the scientific process of developing a story and a theory of where those rocks that are shaped like the bones of giant reptiles come from, that forensic analysis of data in the present to develop uh, a theory or an account of the past um, that is consistent with certain assumptions, that's a scientific way of generating such an account of the past. Um, You don't necessarily expect the Torah to uh, want to reproduce or agree with that account of the past because it may not be at all useful to uh, present that account in the mission it's trying to enable, but there are existential aspects of the human condition that are provoked by finding rocks shaped like the bones of giant reptiles in the ground and that is part of the human condition and if it's part of the human condition that the Torah sees a point in engaging with then it will do so and so I try to argue elsewhere that that is something a subject that the Torah takes up if you look for it in the right place but it doesn't do it in chronological order and it doesn't do it you know at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And I think that you could say the same for, for cosmological things, like that the, the, the cosmic question of, of where everything came from uh, is not something that you can ignore while getting into this question of uh, what the purpose of what we're doing now is, or you know how, how it all fits together. And so I don't want to say that the Torah is, is definitely unable to speak of, or unwilling to speak of. Um, uh, certain subjects but I think the point is more that they're not the the main point or the surface level they have to be excavated carefully with uh, close reading of the text you know Torah to is like water right uh, and what are our, our avot like the forefathers always doing they're going around and like digging wells and the way <laughs> you dig a well is by like seeing signs on the surface and then knowing to dig down deep like there are, there are aspects of Torah that are you have to really dig deep to to get to the water. Um, and I think in many cases, those um, aspects are there. but uh, I think to really see them, they have to be approached with the Kavana with the intention of saying, "I want to see if the if if the Torah has something to teach me about the the meaning to the human condition of the resemblance that humans have to apes, right? Instead of saying, did we descend from apes? You know, Is that the real story, the true story, not the one that we're told in the Torah, but instead this other one that scientists are telling us? When you pose the question that way, it's, it's not a very useful discussion. Scientists have their way of forensically back-solving into the past, and it's useful for certain things, uh, but it produces a certain kind of account of the past. Uh, if the Torah is gonna engage with the question of the fact that we do resemble apes, It's going to do it because it has a point to make to you about who you are and what you're supposed to do. And I think it actually does have a lengthy way of engaging with that subject, Um, but it it doesn't do it in order to agree with the fossil record. Uh, It does it in order to uh, help the Oved Hashem, the servant of Hashem to reflect on who he is and and what he must do.
0: And tying it into what you said before with language, language Allows us to see like see distinctions in in our world and Adam Harishon is is distinguishing hu- humankind from the animal kingdom by giving it name by naming the the animals right absolutely so it, it actually ties into he's a king.
1: he's a participant exactly. in the work of creation according right. to this understanding of naming. Um, uh, because he's doing some of the naming. And I think one of the things that that also gives an opportunity to to mention is that you might react to what I was saying about naming by saying it's too extreme a position because while it is true that you can slice the world into different pieces with different languages, it is kind of hard to avoid on the other hand, uh, the notion that there are some things that are brighter distinctions than others. Like, the fact that there is night and day, that's not the same thing as, like, are zebras and horses two different things or, the, you know, two different kinds of the same thing, um, which which is much more a choice in the development of a sophisticated language. Um, obviously, in biology, they are understood to be different species because we divide them based on whether they can uh, co-reproduce fertile offspring or something like that. Um, and if instead you said, well, all right, hooves and sort of a horsey looking face and I don't care about stripes, then maybe they are the same kind of thing, you know? So there you have this very, um, a, an example where uh, it, it's, it's, it's very um, possible to raise different questions about um, uh, whether there's a distinction there. Night and day is harder to give up on where you sort of say, Oh is it really is it really just us like we decided to say that there was night and day, and before that there was nothing to sort of uh, to to create instead uh, uh, but but I think that the way I have argued to to get around that um uh, just one second um uh the way that I've tr- tried to argue for, for dealing with this is, is to say, there's a distinction between the word of a person and the word of Hashem, right? Like in our in our tradition, there's the idea of devar Hashem. Um, and devar Hashem might stand in some sense for the, the brightest and most real distinctions that there are in the world. That maybe you could say that when HaKadosh Baruch who says something, so to speak, like what does it mean when he says something? What is the Torah saying? Is it just saying that there's a thunderous voice that sort of reverberates in the heavens and that sounds like someone with a very loud loudspeaker and they're saying whatever they're saying? I think probably that's a, an overly cartoonish and and, and childish way of, of reading what, what the text uh, is getting at. And I think that what we need to consider instead is that we learn the meaning of that from the examples that are presented in Tadach, so when Hashem speaks, you know, what happens as a result. Um, And the distinctions that we get from the first instances of Devar Hashem are things like the distinction between light and dark, or between land and sea, uh, between night and day, uh, or elsewhere in Tehilim, in Psalms, you're going to see things like the melting of ice is, is directly connected with Devar Hashem. And what I like about that additional example is it's sort of proof for a theory that you could develop in the text at the beginning. You could say, okay, so maybe they're the brightest distinctions in the world are the ones that the Torah considers the most fundamental. That's what Devon Hashem has to do with. And then like we are co-creators and yes, we name things, but maybe our theories and our names of things are a bit more plastic and a bit less perfect and a bit less um, fully coherent with the undeniable um, bones of reality, or whatever, uh, but but when you look over in Tehilim and it says that, uh, Davar Hashem is is like is right there when when ice is melting, ice and water is like another one of the it's a phase transition for a physicist. It's like a very bright distinction between two phases of matter, and and that appeals as another way of asking this question. Like, aren't there some things in the world where any language that it was accurate in describing the world would have to admit? that there's a difference between ice and water that's qualitative. Um, and, and that's where Devar Hashem comes in, right? Asher bid mari varavim that Hashem brings on the evening with his word because the setting of the sun is one of the brightest lines that we have in nature. So I, I think it, it has to be admitted that there is maybe in our tradition some notion of there are things in nature that are so undeniable as far as bright lines um, that we, we We say that they are part of Devar Hashem, but most of what we're doing when we're doing forensic reconstruction of the past is a much dodgier business, even in science. Meaning that when when a bunch of scientists get together and they say, we all agree, right? That this fragment of something that I found, it means the following about a battle that happened between Egyptians and Arameans 3,000 years ago, or it means the following um, that happened with a meteorite hitting the earth, or you know, millions of years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Those are not unreasonable proposals to make based on certain assumptions, but they're not the way the Torah typically wants to talk about the past. And they also are themselves actually very uh, methodol- methodologically subtle, like that you can make different arguments for the past based on different assumptions and ways of reasoning from the same evidence, uh, and, and this is something I mentioned in the life of Yosef at Sadiq before. Um, I, I've tried to argue elsewhere more elaborately that the Torah is really interested in, most principally when talking about the past in a covenantal idea of the past, like that what in the past is a sign to you in the present about your relationship with Hashem, and where do you see those signs recurring, and how do you identify them? Um, the contrast with that that I think is most vivid is in the life of Yosef. There are two instances where someone makes a forensic case about the past uh, that is wrong based on what we, else, what we know that happens else in the narrative. First, when the brothers dip Yosef's Tonet Basim, is multicolored cloak or a striped cloak or whatever in blood and show it to Yaakov. And then he thinks that that means a beast has devoured Yosef and it, that's not true, but the evidence is compelling, right? From his perspective, what he's seeing is if you wanna reason based on what you know about the world, and and what you're likely to assume based on the material evidence you have in the present, that's a a perfectly reasonable account of the past to arrive at. And similarly, when Potiphar, when the wife of of Potiphar is holding on to Yosef's garment which he's presumably not wearing anymore and she claims that he tried to rape her, that's also a plausible account based on the facts in the present. It's always the case that cosmologists and paleontologists have facts in the present, have observations in the present and are trying to uh, construct a theory of a sequence of preceding events that are consistent with those based on certain assumptions. And that can be interesting. It can sometimes be useful. It can sometimes be harmful, but um, it can sometimes be useful. Um, but that doesn't mean it's, it's the only account and excludes all others. And, and especially when we're holding it side by side with something like the seven days uh, of, of creation, Uh, to imagine somehow that we should be looking for ways in which these ways of talking agree, the first question you have to ask is, why would the Torah be trying to agree with the forensic account? Why do you assume that that is its goal? Uh, And if that apparently isn't its goal, then does that teach you something about how the Torah feels about forensic accounts of the past and um, whether it has a, a different way of talking about the past that, it considers to be more central, the same way it considers fish and birds to be more central than DNA and electrons.
0: And I think the distinctions uh, that you were talking about before, actually, from a polemical standpoint, what the Torah is doing is very significant in comparison to the ancient, you know, the ancient world that preceded the Torah. Like, for example, God is making a distinction between himself and the world that he created. And God is, you know, um, the, the, the creation of light that that precedes the creation of the sun is significant because the sun was one of the chief gods of the ancient world. And the sun is mm-hmm. on the fourth day. And it wasn't even called the Shemesh. It was called the referred to kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, given a backhanded uh, introduction into the Torah by calling it a great luminary in the sky it's it, all these things are extremely significant if if you're set, if you're learning this in a vacuum then it's not you don't really appreciate it but when you're comparing it to like other ancient works you're, you you realize that the hashem is making a distinction between himself and reality by by kind of showing that he owns reality everything that that exists is because of him so they're not they're they're insignificant in reality
1: yeah i i, I agree with that and i think um there are several points that come out of what you just said that are important to make here. Uh one of which I think is better made by by others than myself. Like I really I love reading um uh of professor Josh Berman on on this topic. Uh he has really
0: best of the show.
1: Uh indeed, yeah. Uh he has uh really profound insights, I think, on, on this kind of a topic, and and of course the the books of Nakhum Sarna as well that you can sometimes understand things about what the Torah is doing, doing by comparing it uh, to, uh, not I would say the, exactly the same genre, but let's say other ways of talking about the world that had currency in the ancient world. Um, and and then by, by doing a comparative analysis, you can understand what's different about the ideological system that's being articulated uh, in the Torah uh, and I think that is more generally true. Also, like I, I won't say that you can't find things in the Torah that seem to actually be talking about some of the things that um, science uh, is is supposed to be talking about. Like I've tried to uh, engage, for example, with uh, mm-hmm. the text of um, the Makot, the plagues in in Sefer Shmot, um, and, and point out. That there are a lot of ideas there that actually connect with things we often consider to be important uh for, for discussing biological evolution. Like you start with a river of blood, which is like this sort of primordial soup, like the liquid essence of life. And then you have this event of mass extinction of fish that is followed by frogs jumping out onto land. So there's this sense of like selection against the fish and like the environment changing and becoming inhospitable. And then the animals that have another option move somewhere else, so the frogs jump out. And so, and and frogs are not just any animal, but they're the animal that in their own lifetime recapitulates the gradual process of turning from something that looks like a fish into something that looks like a land animal because of the metamorphosis of tadpoles into frogs. So, you know, the, the question of why the Torah is taking up the subject of biological evolution is a longer discussion, but I think it's actually the same as sort of, when when you you put pieces of the Torah side by side with Greek mythology or Sumerian mythology or whatever, you get to see its particular message by throwing it into relief with a different way of talking about some of the same ideas. I think sometimes you can also do that with ideas that we think of as being the province of, of, of scientific reasoning about the world. And if the Torah is going to do that again, it's it's going to be to teach you something about Hashem and, and what his message is. Um I I also think though that uh the in particular what, what, what you're um referring to in in, in Masebrashit, the, the idea of location of Hashem outside the world, it gets to a, a bigger point about uh the sort of too naive question of like, well, why isn't the Torah in the seven days of, of Bushi, you know, the creation of the world, why isn't it talking about it and, and making it sound like the Big Bang if it knows what the Big Bang is or if the Big Bang is, is a compelling account of the past, which according to certain assumptions and, and certain data, it obviously is. Um, uh, I, I think that the point there is in the same way you were just describing, it's a question of what point is it trying to make about Hashem and, and uh, to teach you about how to understand who Hashem is and, and how to relate to him. I think that the, the cartoon, cartoonish way that this question is usually talked about, like, say, in the context of American culture wars between religion and science or whatever, which obviously is heavily influenced by the way a lot of Christians in America read their translation of the Bible, uh, is that we all know what it means to say that God created something. Um, And we're just arguing about whether or not that is a factually true claim or not. Uh, And and this is a, I think a pointless scrimmage that uh, is, is fueled by people who stand on both sides of the line that don't understand what they're even talking about. Because the truth is that we shouldn't presume we know what Hashem is until we learn who he is and what he is from the Torah. The point of the Torah, a major goal of the Torah is for us to know Hashem, and we can't learn the meaning of those words that are used, those epithets that are used to describe him, without really carefully studying the context of their usage. So if you if you take that understanding to the seven days, then what you what you get very quickly is, this is a message to me about what the rest of this text is going to mean when it's talking about a Kadosh Baruch Hu acting in the world, meaning that You know things about the world already, like others have observed, and it's it's like an easy point to make, that in the seven days, you get plants on day three, and you get the sun on day four. You don't have to be Richard Feynman or something to realize that plants need the sun to grow. That's not an advanced understanding of sophisticated modern science. It's available to anyone at any generation, you know, since the Torah was given. So if the Torah is gonna to say the sun came on day four and plants came on day three, do you think that's just a typo? Is that just sort of a, it, it failed to convince you by, by coming up with something that wasn't plausible? It's obviously making many points like that deliberately. It's saying, okay, your understanding of the way this world works is that it takes much longer than seven days to build a building, let alone the world. Uh, first of all, second of all, your understanding of the world is that you can't have plants without the sun. So both in terms of duration and in terms of chronology, this text is telling you that when it talks to you about HaKadosh Baruch Hu acting on his creation, it's going to be very hard to square with your understanding of the world and how it works. That the vocabulary of the names of Hashem is, is, is being, uh circled with a sort of a big warning sign saying tread carefully in how you think about the meaning of this word and what is being said because when you say Hashem did something and and that truth is being told to you it's going to sound strange and it's going to not make sense until you look more deeply at what you're being told I think that is a principal message at the outset um and and I think it's it would have been, I think, an easier thing actually for a sort of ancient pagan who recently converted to uh, the, the, being a member of, of Am Yisrael and, and, and reading the Torah. That would be a more obvious way of reading the text because as Professor Berman has pointed out, um, it didn't used to be the case that there was anything other than stories that tried to show you how to think about the world by talking about it in a particular way. So it wasn't like saying, let's use a methodology and evidence to construct a story that's consistent. That is a less common way of operating. It's the forensic way, it's the scientific way when looking at the past. It's saying instead, you know what the world is. You have the opportunity to observe it. Now I'm gonna talk to you about what it is and how it originated. And the way that I do that, the claims that I make about that are going to Uh, homiletically form a kind of essay for you about what I'm trying to propose is some fundamental idea about what the world is and what it means and and what we should be doing in it. And and when pagans would do that with their, their mythology, they also were not idiots, right? Like they weren't just fools to think that like first there was snow and fire and then there was a cow and then this and then that. I mean, when someone says that, they're not, uh just mistaken about the facts they're they're doing that in order to teach you a way of looking at the world and we have from our uh our prophets that those other ways of looking at the world are flawed and and they they lead down a crooked path and all of those things so pagan mythologies ultimately from the standpoint of torah are not to be trusted but in terms of what they're trying to do they have more in common with i think some of the the narrative approaches to talking about the past um uh th- that the Torah is principally engaging in.
0: Fascinating. Well said. And the last question I wanted to ask you was did Chazal understand quantum mechanics?
1: Yeah, so so that um is is a bit of a, a different subject in its own right, but it's kind of a fun one uh to touch on. And I think it um you know it connects a bunch of different themes of what we've been discussing because I I think the point is for me, I always found the study of Torah the most enriching when I approached it with the humility of saying, This comes to me from Olam, the creator of the world. He understands everything that I know or could know and more. And so I'm not going to say, Whatever produced this text that I'm studying uh, may have been sort of missing some information. Um, and then when I when I uh, approach it in that way, it'll it sensitizes you in a way to realize, in many cases, that it understands much more than people typically attribute to it. Um, and I think that that's especially true when you're reading Kamaḥ, like the five books of Moses or or Tanakh. Um, but I think you can you can take a similar kind of attitude uh, to the Talmudic sages uh, and 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 say that the the Kodesh, the sort of prophetic inspiration um, that, that fired the, the statements that they made, it it comes to us in an often a very cryptic way or in a poetic way. But when we approach it in the right way, uh, we start to see that it contains many understandings and even some that are kind of shocking um, once we realize that they're there. Uh, and we just have to have the humility to be willing to look in the right way to find them now all of that with that preface being said i'm not saying oh you know the if you just sort of turn the talmud upside down then you can find on page 493 like a uh hidden message that's exactly the same thing as the heisenberg uncertainty principle i I don't think that that is remotely true and i think we when, when people engage in that kind of digging um and and try to say it all very neatly squares. Like it actually fully agrees with everything that scientists say. Um, I I think that that's misguided and it it plants its feet in the wrong place because usually when people are engaging in that activity, it's because they have a fundamental unease uh, about the Torah that they're looking to be assuaged or sort of allayed by finding more proof that it's correct by the standards of science or something like that. And it's, it's not actually proof anyway scientists when they hear these kinds of arguments always are are not persuaded by them because it's very pseudoscientific and mushy and doesn't actually work as an argument um so we're not going to prove that the Torah is correct or prove that Hazel were correct about anything by trying to secretly find the mass of the electron in something someone was saying or whatever however I think that specifically with respect to quantum mechanics there's an important point to be made about again kind of the philosophy of science like some of this is is stuff that even scientists should be taught with you know that it doesn't have to have to do with torah per se even if they want to do their job better um i I wish quantum mechanics were more often taught this way there is a a sales job in the usual way that quantum mechanics is taught even like you know in top universities to future great scientists or whatever where there's such a, a fascination with the 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 magic and the mystery of quantum theory when you formulate it in a certain mathematical way um, that I would say the the real philosophical foundations of it are almost deliberately hidden from students. And what do I mean by this? What, What I mean is that the way that quantum theory is usually presented is that we had classical physics and in classical physics, things were normal. And what that means is when you measure things about the world, you, you take your measuring device, you just use it to tell you the number that is true about that piece of the world that you wanted to know, and it doesn't affect the thing that you measure, uh, and it doesn't matter what you chose to measure, uh, you know, it, that, that'll work equally well. And to the degree that our measurements come out differently one time to the next, it's because we don't have perfect measuring devices, but if we somehow did, then, you know, things would work better, and all, all these things like that. Um, and then, when you get to quantum theory suddenly things get very spooky and weird where if you measure something here it can affect something over there on paper at least um and in ways that maybe you know also can be reflected in some other measurements you make um or uh, that depending on what you choose to measure you either could have a very determined result or a very indeterminate result where it's more of a probabilistic thing etc and the way that this is presented is that it's like a unique Aspect of quantum mechanics that gets you this, and um, that quantum theory um, requires new deep philosophical contemplations because we don't really understand all the spookiness of it. Um, And I used to be totally in the tank for this view of things. Like when I was a kid and I was growing up as a scientist, I loved reading about, you know, sort of uh, reading about physics as written about for popular audiences by by physicists, people like Roger Penrose, you know, who's brilliant guy and wrote some very interesting books that helped inspire me about physics, also is extremely philosophically confused in my opinion and says a lot of things that are ranked nonsense once it comes to sort of talking about uh, implications uh, for physics or mathematics uh, outside of the, the domain of science. This gets back to what we said before about subjective experience and you know trying to make science out of that. But, but in any case, That the 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 way that this is taught, you know, it has this kind of magic quality to it. But you really have to actually run it in the other direction. Even you know, without talking in terms of how 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 the Torah uses this to begin with, just look at classical physics and say, why would someone assert that because you've measured, uh, uh, sorry that that even if you haven't measured something about the world, that there is still a number that's true about it before you've measured it. Why is that a defensible philosophical position, even before we have quantum mechanics? Like with quantum mechanics, that's forced on us. But even if you're talking about cannonballs or something, um, you shoot a cannonball like behind a screen, so no one's looking at it up in the air, and it goes up and and it goes down. The way we think about classical physics is that there is always a number which is true, which is the height of a cannonball off the ground the whole way through. But we just happen to have not measured it. And so the numbers are true about the world and they're sort of in this perfected numerical representation of the world that is the true reality, because this is how physicists like to talk about the world. Um, in this perfected number world, those numbers are true. And then when we like pull back the screen or when we take out a measuring device, we get to learn more of those true numbers about the world. That is a very mystical way of understanding what physics is doing. Like Wittgenstein, for example, would laugh at that way of understanding what physics is doing. Because what he would say actually is that measurement is a language game where we walk up to something with a stick that has notches on it, and we call out the number that we think corresponds to the thing that you know uh, coheres with our presentation of that thing next to the stick. And so measurement is always actually a choice that we make to talk about numbers that seem to us to cohere with things that we choose to observe by certain procedures in the world. And I think that you could argue that that's really a very defensible and coherent way of teaching people about all of what science is and what measurement is, that measurements are not magically true numbers about the world that we didn't know yet and that we used a magical device to reveal to us with imperfect accuracy, but rather that measurements are human creations the same way scientific theories are human creations that all of this is ways we talk to each other about things we observe and things we find predictable and once you once you realize that's what's happening then classical physics already had all the same spooky properties of, of quantum mechanics and really the whole world um has those properties because let, let's not talk about the mathematics of the uncertainty principle, all the wave function and boundary conditions, all these things that are specific to quantum theory. Talking more general terms, if I just said to you about the world, do you agree it's true about the world that in general you find it's only partly predictable? You'd say yes. And you say, do you agree about the world um, that it is typically the case that in order to measure something, you have to be specific about the procedure by which you're going to measure it, and that it can be the case that the implementation of that procedure to measure one thing can impact your ability to measure another thing. You'd say, oh, yeah, I think that that also tends to be true. Like, for example, if you put a camera on the wall and try to observe people, they'll behave differently because they know the camera's there. But when, when you say that, someone's like, what does that have to do with quantum mechanics? There's nothing. Of course, it, it doesn't have anything to do with quantum mechanics. I'm not saying like because of quantum effects that the camera is, is, is observing them and it's changing their behavior. It's obviously a psychological phenomenon in that case, but it's nonetheless true that as you know, as a rule of thumb about the world, that's, that's true in that setting also that observing things can change that the results of the measurement. Um, what's also true is that in order to measure something properly or predict the behavior of something properly, you often need to clearly define the whole system in which you're trying to do your experiment. Right, like you can't uh, say, I don't care what else is going on around me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to exert control over a whole domain. I'm just going to focus on this one part that I'm trying to zoom in on and make sense of. That doesn't work if you're in the middle of a, a field with stampeding bulls in it or something, because it will disrupt your ability to, to focus on what you want to focus on. And again, that's not quantum mechanics, but it is true that really, in order to make measurements carefully, you need to control a whole domain you can't just focus on the part of that domain that you're supposedly measuring you need to exert control over a broader domain that you regulate uh, and that's part of part of the 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 setting in which you're going to make that measurement all of those things are things that physicists got into the philosophically mistaken view because of the mistakes they made from the success of classical physics where they said wow, the world is just a mechanism behaving according to simple rules and all the unpredictability is actually coming from the fact that the rules have somewhat difficult to predict implications. But if we can just isolate a tiny enough piece of the world so that we don't have all of these kind of complex outcomes, then we can render certain tiny pieces of the world perfectly predictable. We can uh, you know, create a situation where there are only a few things that can be measured about this thing and they can be measured perfectly and they can be known perfectly um, and, or to arbitrary precision. Um, and that will be independent of the procedure that we devise like that in a sense was the hope when people started breaking the world into tinier and tinier and tinier pieces. And then what happened was that quantum theory and its requirements jumped up and sort of bit them and, and said, no, all of these things that were true anyway about the world they're actually fundamental things about the world. They can't be eliminated because you thought that the partial unpredictability in the world was just a contingency that derived from the fact that you didn't don't know enough of the initial conditions of all the different pieces that you were dealing with or you hadn't perfectly measured something, et cetera, et cetera. Or um, uh, you thought that uh, you hadn't, you didn't have the ability to measure everything at the same time because of things like psychology, but little tiny particles don't have psychology. So if you can just get one little tiny particle by itself, you can measure everything and you'll be done. And that turned out not to be the case. And so quantum theory, or let's say the the rules of quantum mechanics as we have discovered them, you could say are Akedos Baruch's way of of ensuring that all of these more general statements remain the case, even for the tiniest little broken off bits of matter that you try to isolate that you need to actually talk about the shape of the whole system and define your domain because the wave function actually cares about the boundary conditions and you can't solve the Schrodinger equation without defining boundary conditions for it. Um, you you need to actually define your measurement procedure because different things that you measure will affect your ability to measure other things uh, because of things like the uncertainty principle or because of um, uh, things that that have to do with, how two different observables in general may be intertwined. Um, and, and you need also to accept that there are some situations in which what you've chosen to measure will have an unpredictable outcome. And now it looks much more intrinsic in, in the, through the lens of quantum theory. But the point is that it never stopped being the case with quantum mechanics that whether with Newton's laws and classical mechanics or with quantum mechanics, they're both theories on paper that make a mathematical representation of the world on paper and that helps us to make predictions about the measurements that we make in the world. But what's happening on paper with like the equations and stuff, that's never the same thing as the world itself. Uh, and that is a, a big philosophical mistake I think many theoretical scientists especially fall into where they, they fail to recognize the distinction between their theories of the world and the world itself. Um, and the, so I think like the two final statements to make on this are, first of all, that um, that mistake in a sense is the essence of idolatry because it's saying something of your own construction is a totalizing substitute for the world itself. Like that you've made something that fully, you know, it's it's de adam, right? It's a, a a human construction that substitutes for the full-blown reality of that was made by the hand of Hashem, um, and 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 you're sir you're, you're you're doing a very rarefied and fancy and, and mathematically sophisticated version of what Yishayahu describes, where you sort of you know make the fire to cook your food with one half of the wood and, and carve something to tell you what the world is um, with the other part. Um, so I, I think that is a a, a way that. Torah really illuminates your understanding of what science is and what its limitations are um, in, in a valuable way even to doing science better and making more sense of it. I think in principle, you could think more carefully about quantum mechanics as a result of something like this, even if that were mostly your goal. And the other thing I would say is, like going back to the way the question was posed at the beginning, that there are many things in Chazal, uh in, in, in the, the, the Talmud, in the statements of the sages, that reveal that they have this philosophical understanding, right? That they basically, uh, they know that the world is only partly predictable. They know that the way you choose to measure things affects what you measure and what you can measure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and there are numerous examples of, of, of instances where something that they're talking about, you suddenly realize sounds a lot like, uh, a a philosophical problem that we usually identify as being part of uh, the the mystery of quantum theory, but that they're treating it with great comfort because they understand from the standpoint of halacha, from the standpoint of Jewish law, that these are all tools in their hands, that, that the methodology is to find ways of talking about the world that are effective in characterizing what's happening. And so of course it can be the case that if you observe something over here that it can affect the state of something over there. Like if you, uh, slaughter a cow and you observe that there's a defect in its inner organs, then that can invalidate the kashrut of meat that was taken from the cow. And they're not in the same place. Um, like Allah so to speak can move at the speed of light, just like quantum entanglement, but from when we say that about Halacha, it's much more obvious. It's like, well, but that's because you created a legalistic framework such that the definitions and states of things are affected this way. Um, but that doesn't mean um, that that's different actually than what quantum theorists are doing. The whole mistake is that they're they're pretending they're doing something else than that.
0: And I think also the fact that, you know, even theologically, our, our understanding of the uh, principle of God's unity um, and a separate nature from the world, his his uh, transcendence, I think that has allowed the Jewish people to kind of understand things from a holistic point of view, like a, a the unified field theory, right? That where everything, understanding the interconnectedness in nature and not just seeing everything um, from, you know, as its own kind of, Um, things, like for example, Abu Zahra, like you mentioned, you can fall into the trap of believing that that is the ultimate reality. And if you, if you, you have to kind of take yourself out of that perspective and to see things in a bigger picture in order to fully understand what you're looking at, what you're dealing with. So I think the way you, the way you kind of tied it all together was absolutely brilliant. And uh, thank you so much for making the time.
1: Thanks very much. I really enjoyed this discussion. Um, we got to cover a lot, a lot of a lot of different things, uh, and uh, it's, it's been really interesting.
0: Yes, and I hope to do it again, and I hope to do one one episode on textual, uh, you know, like you you kind of do that with Mahon Shiloh, which I really appreciate when you go into the text, and we would love to just do one episode with you, hopefully with my co-host next time he wasn't able to make it. So thank you again for joining, and uh, hope to see you soon.
1: My pleasure. Take care.
0: hey guys thank you for tuning in and thank you for supporting the show as you know it's a passion project so what we want to do is improve the quality of the show that means getting better equipment and so on and so forth we're not a charity and this isn't a nonprofit organization so if you can you can give anything to support us if you go to www.judaismdemystified.com we have a page where you can contribute even if it's a dollar Everything will help improve the quality of the show. We want to keep this going. We have a lot of great guests lined up. And there's going to be a lot of features on this new website, um, including book recommendations, website suggestions. um, There's going to be a merch store. So all of this is going to help us because obviously we are just two regular guys. We're doing this on our free time. This is a passion project and we love what we do. And we're getting great feedback from you guys. So obviously... The feeling is kind of mutual and we hope to keep that going. So again, we're just two guys and it takes a lot of work on our free time to do this. We're both full-time workers and we both want to grow this. So obviously the best way to help, number one is word of mouth, just spreading the word. That's the best thing you could possibly do for us. The second best thing you could do for us is if you send a tiny donation, it would be great. It's just going to go to better quality for the show. So besides for that, we also have a section where you can send your suggestions, which means topics that you want to hear or guests that you want us to interview. All of that will really help us grow the show. And again, we want to thank you for everything you've done. And we look
1: forward to an amazing future together.